great time. And by the way, um, some, some kids were asking me, and I don't care parents right now, so I'll get in trouble with you. Um, we're going to have snow cones back next time, next Sunday, and cotton candy. So um, parents, just be prepared, and um, I can claim no responsibility for what your kids eat, um, even though it probably is my fault. So anyway, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. I want to set the stage for our text today to kind of remind you where we're at. Um, sometimes as you go through books of the Bible, you can lose your place and, and lose where things are and how we got here. And so I kind of want to recap, especially for those who might be their first time, you're thinking, oh my goodness, we're doing what? Revelation? Um, Revelation, if you recall, was written by Jesus, or by God, given to Jesus, given to John, and it was written for a reason. It was written to reveal, to disclose. That's what revelation actually means, the apocalypto, or apocalypse. It means to reveal. So revelation was meant to reveal something about who God is, about who um, he's called us to be, and about the times he's calling us into, and, and all these things. But it's meant to be kept, it's meant to be heard and kept, a very practical book. All is filled with lots of weird imagery, and today is definitely gets some pretty weird imagery. Um, it is meant to be practically applied and kept. So here, just some things to keep in mind. Don't get bogged down in details. And so last week, you might have gotten bogged down in details. Previous weeks, get bogged down. Don't get bogged down into the details. Let the imagery, when you're reading the book of Revelation, wash over you and let you, you get the, the feeling, the emotion. You get the sense, what is God trying to communicate behind these things? We're not really meant to try to figure out the exact details of what is each image exactly look like? What is a lamb with 12 eyes and horns? What does that look like? No, but it's meant to communicate something very specific. Now, it also doesn't mean that we don't take God's word very seriously. In fact, we take God's word with a high degree of seriousness because we believe that God's word is inerrant and infallible, that his, his word is the only source of authority. So as we approach Revelation, we don't do it lightly or loosely as if it has nothing to say. We just don't want to get caught up and trying to figure out the exact details of everything. So um, it was written to churches in chapter 2 and 3. You saw, you saw that, that it was addressed to seven different churches. And they were living with real temptations, real trials, real difficulties in real settings. Not too different from our own. They were tempted as they were harassed, as they were persecuted, as they were prosecuted, as they were tempted by sin, tempted to give in, tempted to give up, tempted to quit. There are things that are meant to be clear here and kept and heard. In chapter 4, we saw that this voice calls John up into heaven and says, Come up here and I'll reveal to you the things that will, that will happen after this. And then in chapter 5, there's this, this scroll with seven seals and it's the plans of God and yet no one is worthy. And John starts weeping and the elder says, No, look. John turns around and he sees there's this lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks to see the lion, he sees a lamb standing as though it were slain. And this lamb, he's actually worthy to take the scroll from God's hand because he was slain to redeem a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then in chapter 6, we see the lamb begins to open these seals and preliminary judgments are carried out on the earth. And, and the first four are, are the, the horsemen of the apocalypse and things that we already see transpiring and yet they're going to continue to get worse until the end. And then chapter Five, the seal gets open, and the martyrs cry out, and they say, how long, God? How long will you allow evil to reign? How long will you allow bad things to happen? How long will you let the deaths of martyrs go unpunished? And then it doesn't go answered right away, or well, the answer is wait. 
Chapter 7, well, chapter 6 actually ends with a question, who can stand? Who can stand? And we saw last week that chapter 7, it's like the divine pause button, and God answers that question of who can stand, and he says, who can stand are those who are sealed, those who are sealed perfectly and completely by God. Not only that, those who can stand are those who are sealed completely by God. They're those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And I love that we sang about the blood of the Lamb this morning. And, and not only that, who can stand is those who are sealed, washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But those who are sheltered by the presence of God and guided by the Good Shepherd. And that's where we find ourselves today. And now today we resume and the seventh seal is open. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, we're going to read all of Revelation 8 and 9. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you, um, we, we have some out in the lobby to the left. There's some little blue Bibles. You can take one, you can keep it. Um, if you need to have one of those, actually, if you need one of those, can you raise your hand right now and we'll get one of the ushers to come and get you one? Okay, perfect. Looks like everybody's got one. Um, so turn your Bibles to Revelation 8 and let's pay attention to the, the big picture of what's going on. Let's not get caught up in the details. But let's hear this as God's holy inerrant, inspired word for us. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets of the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke came, from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people 
who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore the breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, passages like this are sobering. Thank you that you give us passages like this for us to see the sobering consequences of rebellion against you. Thank you, God, that you promise to vindicate yourself, to vindicate your people, to answer the prayers of your people, to to carry out justice, but Lord, we are, we are sobered as we see your justice being carried out. God, we're also grateful that your justice has not landed on, on any who have placed their faith in you. Father, I pray that we might be affected by these verses, that we might practically hear and keep them ourselves. Would you give us your grace by your spirit to be able to hear and apply, not get sidetracked, Lord, to not get bogged down, but to listen for your voice? Would you enable me to preach by your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Back in chapter 6, there was a question that wasn't completely answered. Do you remember that question? It It was the question of the martyrs. The fifth seal revealed the souls of the martyrs. They were kept safe under the throne of God in his presence, and they were crying out for justice. 
In, in Revelation 6.10, they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, God? How long will you allow evil to reign? How long will you withhold judgment? How long will you not judge all those who oppose your glory and your goodness and those who kill the saints? How long was the question? But that's a question that we can still have inherently in our own hearts and minds as we behold the evil in the world around us and and how terrible things are and how people are rebelling against God. They are rebelling against His glory. They are mocking His people, mocking His name, defaming the holiness of God and killing His people. So the question for us that we wonder is how long Will God allow Christians to be killed for their faith? How long will we see martyrdom happening like we've been seeing the last few weeks, months, years of Christians around the world? It's still estimated that about 11 Christians are killed for their faith every day. Some estimates are far higher that one Christian is killed for their faith every six minutes. Either way, it's, this is not something that doesn't happen. We're just not familiar with it as much here. In North Korea, Christianity is still seen as the number one enemy of the state. In Afghanistan, Christianity is still illegal. In Nigeria, Boko Haram militants have been targeting Christian villages for nearly two decades straight. In Somalia, recently Christians were targeted as high-value targets to be eliminated. In Libya, Christians face deadly violence. In Pakistan, they're openly discriminated against. In Sudan, those who convert are targeted for persecution directly. In Yemen, believers are the ones who suffer during the civil war and famine they've been having. In Iran, it is illegal to preach the gospel or follow Jesus. Even in countries like India that are modernized, there's a great cost to being a believer, and it still might mean losing your family or your livelihood. Burkina Faso, over the last couple weeks, the Christians there have been persecuted, harassed, and killed. April 28th, Pastor Pierre, I cannot pronounce his last name, I won't try. He was talking with church members outside of his church. A dozen gunmen on motorbikes arrived, told the Christians to convert to Islam. They refused. The captives took the Christians' Bibles, phones, and ordered them to gather under a tree. And called the Christians one other time behind the church, then shot them. Six were killed, including the pastor. Others were seriously injured. The government burned the church and stole rice and sheep from the pastor's house. And on May 12th, Christians were leaving a church, and 20 gunmen opened fire just a week ago. They fatally shot and killed six people there. They burned the church, looted nearby stores. The president of the Federation of Evangelical Churches and Missions in Burkina Faso guided Christians on how to pray. He says, in the face of blind hatred, let us ask God to give us strength to spread the love which makes us the children of God. The unity of the body of Christ and the whole nation must be preserved. He asked Christian organizations to be involved in the search for praying for peace and training Bukanabe youth to go back and preach the gospel. Christians there are fleeing, some are in hiding. For us, the questions still persist. How long How long will disease and suffering go on? How long will God allow the rampant killing of babies? How long? 
How long will disease go unchecked? How long will we struggle with temptation? How long until these things end, until redemption comes? How long? How long will God allow people to rebel and reject him and mock his name? These questions aren't new and they're not limited to people in the first century either. The questions are, are really, the questions are the ones that God is answering in this chapter. And for us, we think this is harsh, this is horrendous, and it is. But not when we consider the holiness of God and the questions of the martyrs, the questions of the saints throughout the centuries. How long, God, will you overlook? How long will you not judge? So what we see here is the holy response. A holy response to the prayers of the saints. And that's really the first thing you see here. That's, that's the big point of chapter 8, really. There's, there's three points we're going to see today. is that God answers prayers. That God exposes evil. Sorry about that. God punishes sinful humanity and God exposes evil. So he answers the prayers He punishes sinful humanity and he exposes idolatry for what it really is. And the first thing we see really in the first 12 verses is these are an answer to the prayers of God's people. This judgment is an answer to the prayers of God's people. God will answer the prayers and cries of his people. That's what we need to see. Don't get caught up in the little details. God will answer. That's what we need to see. God will answer. He does answer. He will answer fully the prayers of his people. And their question, how long is answered in chapter 8? And it begins with this hush that falls. And I think that hush is because all of heaven is anticipating the scroll being opened, the seventh seal being broken, and the judgment that's about to come. And there's this hush that falls on all of heaven. And it's this heaven's breath being held in anticipation and all of the unfolding of God's plan for the rest of history, for the end things to begin. This is really the beginning of the end in chapter 8, and we're going to see the Revelation cyclical. We're going to keep coming back to these themes over and over again. Thanks, Matt. Um, we'll keep coming back to these themes over and over again, and we'll see different recapitulations, really. So we saw that with some of the seals, the first four, that they were geared towards judgments on earth, preliminary judgments, and we're going to see they escalate and get worse. And so we'll see that with the trumpets and then the bowls and We'll see things continue to increase and the sixth seal with most of those is, is where the final things have begun and the seventh is, is where God wipes out all opposition. So we see that kind of same cycle here. Made the illustration last week that it's, it's like a great concerto, how it grows and builds and kind of comes back on itself again. And so that's what we see in this passage as well. In this passage we see the first four trumpets they remind us of the Egyptian plagues all four of them can be mapped to different plagues of Egypt different plagues that came on those who persecuted and held God's people in captivity and that's interesting to note because if you think about it for years and years and years for about 300 years the people of God were in captivity in Egypt and they cried out and they asked for God to deliver them from evil to carry out judgment on the Egyptians and it seemed to not come until finally God raised up Moses and he brought the plagues and so we see that here the ultimate fulfillment of that passage is seen here that God ultimately will rescue his people and redeem his people and he brings about the same kinds of plagues but in 
much more dramatic form in, on all the earth. And we see that God is revealing that just like he did in the plagues of Egypt, the Egyptian gods were impotent to save. People here, they turn to their own gods and they are impotent to save. And in fact, these gods turn on them. That's what we see in chapter 8. And we see that Pharaoh had no power in, in Egypt. And just like Pharaoh had no power to keep God's hand back, there is no one to stop when God unleashes and lets evil reign. Now this is, God is not evil, but he, he takes off his restraints and allows evil to run as part of his judgment. And that's what we see in chapter 8. And these seven angels, they blow the trumpets given to them, and we see that this first seal is given. And whenever trumpets are blown, I'm sorry, this first trumpet is given, whenever trumpets are blown in the Old Testament, it's always a sign of God's judgment or an announcement of God's power. And if you remember, the, the last time in the Old Testament you see the trumpets blown seven times, it was when God's people were marching around Jericho, and every day they marched around Jericho and they blew the trumpet seven times. And then on the final day, on the seventh day, they marched around Jericho seven times. And then on the seventh trumpet, the walls fall. And God carried out his destruction on his people's enemies. And we see that echo here. We see in, in Joel 2, prophesied of, of, time, of this time when he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people like there have never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of generations. Whenever the trumpets were blown in the Old Testament, it was a sign that God was about to execute judgment on behalf of his people. These angels are blowing the trumpets and we see that God is, is doing something to, to mightily carry out his plans on behalf of his people, to bring deliverance, to judge his enemies. Verses 3 to 5, we see an angel there. Now it's interesting that it says an angel came and stood. So what, what's happened so far, if you look in verse 1 and 2, look back in your Bible, it says that there was silence for half an hour. Verse 2 says, these seven trumpets were given, but yet they've not been blown yet. Judgment's not yet been carried out. And then, and then in chapter 3, something happens before judgment's being carried out. And, and that's how we know that this is in response to the prayers of the saints. Because what this angel does, look down your Bibles. He stands with a golden censer and he's given incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rises before God from the hand of the angel. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of priestly service and the angel is offering a sacrifice of prayer, the prayers of the saints. And then, and then he scoops up, he's told to scoop up, scoop up these burning embers from the throne in response to the prayers of the saints that are offered. And in response to the prayers of the saints, look in verse 5. It says, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and then begins judgment. So what is this? What are we seeing here in chapter 8? We're seeing the answer to that question of how long, O Lord, to the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the martyrs, 
And God says, I will not delay. I will answer. I will bring my judgment. And we see horrible, yet righteous judgment. The whole earth is shaken. There's peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, earthquakes. And then after that, so this is all after the prayers of the saints are offered before God. Then look down at verse 6. The seven angels prepare to blow them. And they're blowing in response to God's prayer, to the prayer of God's people. The first angel blows. The result's dramatic. It reminds us of the, the plague in Egypt when fire and hail were thrown down. But now there's fire and hail and blood. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. In Joel 2.30 it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. First century there was a, a volcano in the Aegean Islands and it turned the sky blood red. So the readers would have been aware of this kind of imagery. Yet what John describes is even more severe. And he describes really the, the effects on creation and how a third of the earth is burned up. And then in verse 8, you see the, the second angel blowing his trumpet. And there's something like a great mountain. We're not sure exactly what this is. It's this flaming ball, maybe a meteorite. We have no idea. But what we're meant to see is this, this judgment being carried out in creation. And a third of the, the sea is dead. And a third of the ships are destroyed. And that would have been absolutely devastating to a Mediterranean culture that relied on the sea for food and transport to, to carry goods and trade. It would have massive food shortages, massive problems when when you can't get goods and services where they need to go. There'd be economic scarcity. There'd be economic impact that was severe. But notice that in the plagues, all these plagues really, until the final ones, until the final three woes, they are all partial. Now why is that? They are all partial because God is answering the prayers of his people, but they're partial because he wants the unbelievers to repent. He's not wiping all of the earth out yet. He doesn't do that. He, he wipes out thirds, third, third of the trees, a third of all the green things, a third of the sea, a third of all ships. God is even in his judgment, he is merciful and restrains his judgment from completely wiping out all of humanity because he desires that all repent and come to him. Even in the midst of executing justice righteously. The third angel blows a trumpet in verse 10. A great star falls from heaven. All the waters are poisoned and made bitter. We don't, don't try to figure out what is this star called Wormwood and exactly why and how did all the, the waters become poisoned and bitter and Wormwood is a, is a bitter tasting plant and it, one ounce of it could, could spoil the taste of about a 500 gallons of water but that would have meant something to people in Laodicea if you remember they, they, they had a hard time coming by good water in Laodicea. So this is written to churches that they would have been able to identify with these things. And whenever God makes waters bitter, it was always a sign of judgment and a symbol of bitter sorrow and death. So a third of the waters are poisoned. And if you were in Laodicea and you were thinking, hey, our water is already scarce, we already have to get it piped in, and then imagine that a third of the water is poisoned, people will go thirsty and die Recent years, people have rightly been indignant about how Michigan officials were negligent managing the water supply of, of Flint, 
and people were poisoned. As, many, as a result, many people developed cancer, lead poisoning, legionnaires' disease. Now imagine, though, that's just in Flint area. Imagine if a third of our entire nation's water supply was poisoned. You know, after, after a third of the fish in the sea were dead, after a third of everything green would have been burned up, these are catastrophic things happening. You can survive a lot of things, but fresh water is essential to life. Now notice how the contrast of what we've seen before of, of, of the previous chapter, the, the lamb, the shepherd, guides his people to what? To living water. And now we see, though, part of the judgment is the removal of fresh water, and this judgment results in people dying of thirst. In verse 12, the fourth angel blows his trumpet and, and the heavenly bodies are struck so that the day is made, made a third shorter and the night is a, a third darker. So a third of the night, the light of night is shortened and a third of the day is shortened. So all these massive catastrophes have already happened and now plants that didn't get hit will not grow. Life in the sea that wasn't affected won't be fed by, by as well, you know, it requires certain hours of sunlight to, for plants and algae to grow. And this is imaging, imagery is increasingly dire judgment. But these are all answers to the prayers of God's people. You know, think about the, I love that we're going to do in beginning of June a class on prayer and taking the Lord's Prayer. Because you think about some of those aspects of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. They're actually getting answered right here. Our Father in heaven, holy or hallowed be your name. That's what God's doing here. He's making his name holy. Your kingdom come. Oh, God's wiping out all opposition, the opposing kingdoms. And he's bringing his will about. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our prayers will one day be answered if we're praying in accordance with God's will as well. And that's something we need to see, that our prayers have an effect. They are brought before the very throne of God, and God answers our prayers. Whether you see it here on earth right now or not, God always answers prayer. It might not be the way we want. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait, as he told the martyrs before. And sometimes he executes his prayer. Now, sometimes we just don't even ask what's right. God still answers those prayers. And ultimately... Any prayers in accordance with his will will finally be answered. One day we will no longer ask how long. He answers the prayers of those who ask for the enemies to be God to be saved or silenced. And we see that God's enemies are being silenced, a third of them, so that some might respond and be saved. God's bringing plagues just like he did in Egypt, wrath on the world in response to the persecution of his people and their cries for help. He crushes the strong just like he crushed Egypt to deliver his seemingly weak people. And then we see not only does he answers his people's prayer, he does it mightily and fully. Now, you might not be encouraged to pray. I hope this, this scripture actually encourages you. Your prayers are brought before the very throne of God. They're sweet-smelling incense. Recently, we started changing how we do Sunday morning prayer, and some folks gather Sunday morning about 20 of, so 940, some folks right here in the auditorium gather for prayer. You're invited to do that as well. We would love it. You know why? Because we believe that God answers the prayers of the saints, and that's what we see here. God responds mightily. And then what else do we see? The second thing we see, the second major idea that we see is that God will punish. 
He will punish sinful humanity, but he will spare those who've been sealed. Look down in verse 12 or 13. I heard a loud cry of an eagle crying, woe, woe, and woe. Eagles in, in, Rome, in, in this time, they, they were seen by the Roman government as messengers of the gods. And so they would have been familiar with this idea of an eagle carrying a divine message. In chapter 19 of Revelation, the birds are called by God to come and feast on the carrion of his enemies when he finally wipes all of his enemies out. And so this, this bird is a portent of what is to come. And this threefold woe is the worst kind. This eagle is a harbinger of judgment, announcing death and destruction. Saying, woe on all those who oppose the saints. Woe on all those who dwell on the earth, meaning all those who are earthly in their dwelling. All those who are opposed to God. Revelation 9.1, this fifth angel blows his trumpet, a star falls from heaven. This is, a, is an angel who's given authority to open the bottomless pit. And, and if you're reading this in the first century and you weren't already in awe of what is going on, you would begin to tremble as you think, oh no, the bottomless pit is going to be open. This is the pit of hell. He opens the shaft in verse 2, and the shaft rises smoke. The imagery is meant to kind of wash over. This, this bottomless pit is open, and this smoke pours out on all the earth. This, this kind of fiery smoke, and it comes out, and all the sun and the air are darkened. It's a scene that's far more dramatic than any movie we can imagine. Smoke of judgment, it follows the smoke of the prayers of the saints. And then from the smoke, everything's all cloudy and smoky. You can't see anything. That's the imagery you have here. The smoke's clouding everything. No, nobody can see through the smoke. But then all of a sudden you hear this noise and out of the smoke flies, look in verse three and four, these locusts. Now these are, these are not actual locusts, but these are demons or some kind of demonic entities that come out looking like locusts. And they're given power like they weren't scorpions, but they had the power like scorpions. I mean, they could sting. And they were told, now look, look in verse 4. How do, how do I know that it says God will punish sinful humanity but spare those he's sealed? He spares those he is sealed, and we see that in, chap, in verse 4 of chapter 9. Look, look in verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass, the earth, or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now this is a seal that's given to all those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. A seal that's given by God and he seals his people completely. And so we know if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you placed your confidence in him, you're trusting in Jesus, you've been completely sealed. So these demonic entities can have nothing to do with you. And yet, God does punish sinful humanity with them. And look at verse five. It says they're allowed to torment for five months. They're not allowed to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. They torment these unbelievers so badly that people want to die. This is a sign of what's going to happen in the future. Before you try to figure out what these creatures look like and what they are, remember this is imagery meant to convey an idea. These are demonic forces. When Jesus is referred to as a lion in the previous chapter, it doesn't mean he was actually a lion, but that he is 
the king. He's powerful. He's fearsome. He's the mighty head of Judah. Like when Jesus says in the Gospels, he's the bread of life. It doesn't mean he's actually a loaf of bread. But it does communicate a powerful truth that we must get, that we rely on Jesus for spiritual food, for life, for nourishment. These locusts here are are terrible, ravaging creatures. Their appetite for destruction is unbridled and never satisfied. Just like locusts would come in swarms in the Middle East and in this area of Turkey and they would destroy everything. They would gobble things up and their appetite was, was never satisfied. And so that's what we're meant to see. These, this demonic power is unleashed from the pit and, and they have an appetite for destruction that's never filled. And they have a sting that's like a scorpion. They're not scorpions, but they have a sting like a scorpion. Now, we're not familiar with scorpions very much. I remember when I first moved here, we found these little itty-bitty tiny black scorpions that look like ants. I've never been stung by one. I don't even know if they can sting us here, but um, I'm told they're, they're nothing worse than a mosquito. But for those living where modern-day Turkey is, um, it's a big deal. All the churches in Asia would have understood that. They, they would have understood how painful a scorpion sting could be. There's, there's four deadly species of, of scorpions that can kill babies. They typically don't kill adults, but they can if you're weak. And, but they're extremely painful. There's 15 different varieties of scorpions. For some reason, this area of Turkey, Asia Minor, where this letter is written to, it's like a hotbed for scorpion activity. They had a, I was reading some statistics. I sometimes get sidetracked when I'm reading and studying. Got sidetracked with statistics from 2005. 24,000 people in Turkey were stung by scorpions in one year. That's just something that doesn't happen. I don't think we have that many snake bites. This is a Turkish man. He described the time he was stung by deadly scorpion at age 12. He listened to his description, so it will help us understand what it means when a scorpion stings someone. He says, when that first scorpion stung me, I thought I would die. My body just completely stopped working. I was far from home, so I went to a house near the entrance to the village. There was an old woman there sewing a quilt. She took her needle and pierced the finger the scorpion had stung over and over. That finger had me in agony for days. Imagine being tormented like that with a deadly deadly agonizing pain for five months straight. So no wonder in verse 6, look down your Bible, it says those days people seek death and not find it. Part of the punishment is they wanted to commit suicide, they wanted to die, but they weren't enabled to. Under demonic influence, people had killed the martyrs, but they're not allowed to die to avoid this demonic torment. There's some irony here. Death keeps on fleeing from them. These scorpion-like locusts, they terrorize, they demoralize all who've rejected God's call for repentance. They are tormented. And it's long, it's five months, but it's not an everlasting time period. It's severe, but it's just a precursor to the pain that all who reject Jesus will experience in eternity. It's, It's divinely shortened, and the implication is the torment's meant to drive people to repentance and find relief in Jesus. It gives a description of these of these weird terrifying locusts and that's the the thing we're supposed to get is that they are they are terrifying they are huge this is not apache attack helicopters okay so if you heard that weirdness before anybody heard that weirdness before you can put your hand up 
That's not what this is. This is, this is a description. We're not meant to try to figure out and have some corollary into modern times because you know why? The first century hearers would have not have done that. They wouldn't have been looking for a corollary of what these things were like. What they would have been saying is, oh my goodness, these, these are fearsome, massive creatures and they have what looks like crowns of gold. So they are pretenders to the crown. They are pretenders to the throne. They have a pretense of rule that they say they have authority, but they have no real authority. They have what looks like crowns of gold and they they mimic humanity. They they try to usurp the image of God and so they take on the face of humanity and the hair of women and these demons are cunning and they imitate human features and ultimately evil wears a human face. But the teeth are like those of lions ripping voracious appetites, looking to devour, just like Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that's that's what the imagery is meant to convey here. They have breastplates like iron. They are are almost an unstoppable force and they are deafeningly loud. Just like first century accounts of how when swarms of locusts would come, it would sound like chariots of horses rushing into battle. But this is even worse because these are gigantic creatures who can sting and bite. These are demonic forces and the swarm is terrifying. Look in verse 10, they have tails and stings like scorpions. They have power to hurt people, and it's in their tails. What do we see in this, in this judgment? God is waging war on the world that has been opposed to him. And he's doing that by giving people over to the very things that they worshiped, and he's showing them what's behind all their idols. You see, we can toy around with idols and think that they're actually okay, benign, relatively you know, minor. But what we see here is God is vindicating his own name by, just, by no longer restraining evil, by opening up the pit that he, is, he held back, by allowing the angels that he had put in bondage, the, the angels of darkness, to come in and, and have their way. God doesn't have to, to do anything himself to execute the judgment, but just take off his restraints. And he vindicates his own glory. Now, this, this, this verse might be bother, these chapters might be bothersome to you. You know why? Because sometimes we have too low a view of the glory of God. We don't see how holy and mighty and awesome God is. And we don't see the fact that we have offended a holy and righteous God. You know, if, if imagine a couple that had always wanted to have a child and they finally have a child and they give this child everything they could ever want and they care for this child, love this child, shower all, all goodness on this child and then at age 12, this child decides, you know what, I am I'm a man or I'm a woman and I don't, I don't want to be under your authority anymore and so I'm gone. That'd be offensive. But it just pales in comparison to the offense that we have committed against God. God created humanity, gave them absolutely everything and, and gave them all they could ever want and need in him and every desire to be fully satisfied and fulfilled in him and yet mankind thwarted and said, no, I'm going on my own and then sinned and rebelled. And so God is righteously punishing humanity. Let's not have too small a view of God's holiness and his glory. But let's be grateful for the fact that if you've been sealed in him, that all this judgment that we see, it passes over us. 
God will punish sinful humanity. And what we're meant to, to do with this is not to fear, to trust in his sealing and to worship with gratitude. How are we meant to apply this? How are we meant to keep that and hear that in, in a second point? We're meant to, to not fear, to trust in his sealing, no matter what happens, and then to worship him with our gratitude. And finally, what we see is the third main idea we see is that God exposes idolatry for what it really is, and he shows humanity's dire need to repent. God, he's exposing idolatry for what it really is, what's really behind it. And he shows humanity's need for repentance. Imagine that at the potluck next Sunday... I hope you can all make two. Imagine, though, that um, I snuck... I won't do this, by the way. <laughs> Imagine I snuck in, you know, rotten meat that was tainted, have a little E. coli in it, maybe. Probably won't kill you, but you'll get pretty sick. But I put it out there, and I covered it, you know, I think originally the French created sauce to cover bad meat. That's what I hear. And so I did that. I, I create this wonderful cheese sauce, and I put it on top of all this rotten meat, and I just put it out on the table for you. Um, that wouldn't be very kind. Um, and it would be kind of someone to say, hey, wait a minute, this stuff is nasty. It's going to do harm. It's going to damage you. You need to see what's really behind this, this veneer. is something that's really awful. And so what we see here is this revealing. That's what this vision does. This, this prophetic picture, it reveals what is really behind what we think is palatable idolatry in the world. When people go after riches or wealth or, you know, the fame, fortune, success, power, sex, and they live for those things, we don't, we don't really seem bothered by them because we don't see what's really behind them. And yet God pulls back the curtain. He says, you know what's really behind those things? It's demonic. Idolatry is demon worship. Idolatry is demon worship. That's what we're seeing here in chapter 9. These temptations to idolatry, they're like the heinous traps of a dark overlord. Sin is far more evil and deadly than we know. Idolatry and sin only leads to destruction and death. Following the living God, even though we might die, leads to salvation and life, and we will never die. Those sealed by God will avoid judgment. Only those who repent will entrust in Jesus are saved. And yet what's really behind all of these tortures, it's, it's just showing that Idolatry is led by demons. Verse 11, it says, they have their king over them. The angel of the bottom was put, Abaddon, the destroyer, is what that means, Apollyon, destroyer. The things that people give themselves to, these idols that people give themselves to, will only destroy because the destroyer is the one who rules over them. The first woe passes, two more woes are to come in verse 12. The sixth angel blows his trumpet. They release these angels who've been bound. We don't know who they are. We're not, we're not meant to, but these, these dark angels, these overlords have been bound in the river Euphrates, and yet they're released to, to wreak havoc, and they lead this, this awful horde of hell that were prepared at the, at the time that God appointed in verse 15. In verse 16, we see that this horde is massive, if you're going to do math, it'd be 200 million. I'm not sure that's the intent, is to have the exact number there. But what the intent is to show is that this is a force that's larger than any other in the world, not only then, but now. You know, and um, I love to read 
fiction. Love to read Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, there's different terrifying enemies that they face, and they, they face these seven kind of disembodied spirits, these, these riders, these black riders, the Nazgul, they're fallen kings, they were wraith-like followers, this dark lord Mordor, and their voices kind of go through the air, they strike fear in people that they pursue, and yet this imagery here is far more dramatic, it's 200 million of creatures like that, but far worse. Imagine seeing these demonic horsemen coming that it'd be completely unnerving. And they were impenetrable. They had breastplates on them and their horses. You know, the the Parthians had a cavalry in that day that rivaled Rome and the Romans were afraid of because they were armored all over the horses and the riders both. And yet here we see images of that. But this is a more scary army than any Parthian writer and their breastplates, the color of fire and sulfur. And fire and sulfur, or fire and brimstone is the word they would have used back then, come out of the mouths of their lion-like horses. The horses have heads of lions that, that destroy. And a third of mankind is killed by this these these fire and smoke breathing horses, these noxious smells, same smell sulfur is. If you don't know what sulfur smells like, if you ever had hard-boiled eggs or your wife has ever been making hard-boiled eggs and you come downstairs, what happened to me around, I mean, around Easter, I'm like, oh my gosh, what happened? And then I realized, oh, she's making deviled eggs. I think that's appropriate. They are deviled eggs because they smell like this sulfur. It's awful. And they breathe out this noxious smoke and fires of judgment. And they wound with their tails and their mouths kill. And now, evil is not restrained as much. And the rest of mankind says that we're not killed by these plagues. Look in verse 20. A third of mankind has now been wiped out by these plagues. This is terrifying judgment from God. You would think if you had seen, if you were living through this time that is to come, and you were not a believer, you would think all these things would make you sit up and take notice and cry out to to God and ask Him to rescue. And yet what happens in verse 20? Look down at verse 20. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent. And how do we know this is all about idolatry? Because it tells us in verse 20 that really what's behind these plagues is idolatry. It says, they didn't repent of the works of their own hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. We create so many idols for ourselves that we worship, and what's really behind them is the worship of demons, and the worship of those demons, those demons come and they eat the people that worship them. Idols don't reward. Idols torment. Idols kill. It's reminiscent of Psalm 115. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, the ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They don't make a sound of the throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
What God's showing is the results of trusting in idols is that you're eaten and destroyed by them, by the demons behind them. They didn't repent, look in verse 21, of murders and sorceries and sexual immoralities and theft. What are we seeing here? God's goal in even this punishment is that people would repent. And John's appalled. They don't turn back. They didn't repent. Shockingly. In that day in Ephesus, one of the cities, seven cities, they would have been very familiar with magic. We know that because in the book of Acts, when the apostle goes and preaches to them, one of the first ways they repent is they burn all their magic books. They burn anything that has to do with looking for spirits or the spirit world to get things for them. And you know what? We might not dabble in the same ways, but people are tempted to look for things to get them something, to get them fame or fortune or success or sex or get people to like you and yet we see that humanity still continues on enslaved to evil desires and worshiping idols continuing idolatry and depravity this is an abject refusal to love god to repent to respond to god's love and this really demonstrates they deserve the very punishment they're getting The message is clear. Idolatry is demonic. It leads to death and destruction. If you're a Christian here, you wouldn't have gotten hung up in the first century on all the details as much, but what you would have been clear to you is that this is an unmistakable message. Don't toy around with idolatry. You remember the messages to the seven churches in chapter two and three. A lot of them were to do with, hey, don't have anything to do with going to those pagan temples and having those meals. You know why? Because what you're really doing, you're participating in worship of demons, even though you don't mean to or you might not mean to, or you, not, you think it's not a big deal to give in and do the same practices that people in the world do, or you think, hey, you know what, it's the only way I can actually make money is if I compromise on my principles, and so you're tempted to make, God, make money your God, and yet what these Christians would have seen is God's exposing it and saying, what's behind that is demonic activity. Don't be fooled, don't toy around, don't play with idols. Don't let even a hint of idolatry creep into your life. It's like courting heinous demons. It's like inviting the hordes of hell into your life. Don't do it. Place personal lusts and desires and pursue selfish gain and power and fame, success or drugs or the feelings that they give us that have worshiping God. That's how we worship idols today and yet it is hellish. It's no different then. They just made objects to venerate them. But they were still trying to do the same thing. They're still trying to get things to seek fulfillment or gratification or satisfaction or worth, power, prestige, comfort, whatever. And what we're seeing here is those things don't give life, they only destroy and kill. Don't toy around. Maybe you're tempted today with idolatry. You think it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal that I give in to sexual morality, I look at pornography. It's not a big deal that. You know, I compromise on my integrity and give in. It's not a big deal that I suppress my Christian witness at work because I want people to accept me. It's not a big deal when people make fun of me and I don't say anything, I don't speak up for God because um, I really care about them accepting me. That's giving into idolatry and God says, no, don't mess with that. That's not a tame thing. Don't envy the choices that unbelievers make or the success or money or sex or power or fame that seem to be the reward for the idolatry today because their true reward is demonic enslavement, torment, and death. What this passage to do a few things for us today as we get ready to close here. I want this passage to encourage us to respond 
to our holy God in prayer. That we would pray the Lord's Prayer, the, how he taught us to pray. We would pray that his, his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, his will would be done. We would pray for him to forgive us, enable us to forgive others. We pray that God would rescue people from this torment. Also wanted to have the effect, believe God would have it have the effect of don't play around with sin and idolatry. Don't, don't toy with them. It's demonic. Temptation lays a trap that if, if given into without repentance, if you have a habitual pattern of giving into temptation and you are not repentant, this is where it leads to torment and the sting of scorpions. Stand against evil as well and the temptation of idolatry. There's a story in The Lord of the Rings after King Theoden is crushed beneath his fallen horse by one of the Nazgul has scared the horse and he's crushed beneath it and this, this dark king comes to take his body and there's only two people who are standing to defend the king's body. It's this warrior named Durnhelm and Mary, who's his little hobbit. And Tolkien writes the scene, he says, Mary crawled on all fours like a day's beast and such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. And king's man, king's man, his heart cried within him, you must stay by him. But his will made no answer and his body shook. He dared not open his eyes or look up. But Eowyn, was who was disguised at Durnhelm, then commanded the Nazgul, leave the dead in peace. And a cold voice answered, come not between the Nazgul and us pray, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the house's lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. A sword rang, though, as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Then Osgill says, Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seems that Durnhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman, Eowyn am I. Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my Lord and can be gone if you not, be not deathless for living or dead. Or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The black rider gets up to kill Eowyn, but suddenly he too stumbles forward with a cry of bitter pain, and his stroke went wide, diving into the ground. Mary's sword has stabbed him from behind. Eowyn, Eowyn, he cried. Tottering, struggling up with her last strength, she drives her sword between the crown and the mantle. The great shoulders bow before her. The sword breaks, sparkling the shards. This false crown rolls away with a clang. And a cry goes up in the shuddering air, fades to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind, a voice bodiless and thin that dies, swallowed up, never heard again that age of this world. It's, it's, it's imagery of putting to death idolatry, really, and how evil idolatry is. We must rise and stand against the evil of idolatry, the demonic forces behind it. Expose it for the evil that it is. Preach the liberating, life-giving truth of the gospel. Revel in. Embrace the life-giving waters that the shepherd leads us to. Thrust the death blow to idolatry with the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth. Be not afraid. This is a sobering call, not just to put away idolatry, but to see what's at stake when we interact with unbelievers. Those people at your work and school in your neighborhood, they are trapped, blinded by idolatry, and we're called to call them to repentance, to believe in the one true living God. It's not trying to figure out the timing of this passage and the equivalent for these beasts and get sidetracked. 
it's, it unveils what's really going on. The motivating demons, idolatry. The world thinks that unlimited fame and money, power, sex, are ultimate goals, but for life. But the takeaway from this passage is that these things are demonic, they're deadly, they lead to destruction of humanity. So let's put away idolatry, let's pray, let's share the gospel and put our hope afresh in God and worship him because we're spared if we've placed our faith and hope in him. Amen? Well, go ahead and the, and the band come up. Are you guys okay to play something, Phil? I don't know even if Phil's still here. Are you, are you okay to play something, Phil? Great, come on up. Thanks for pitching in after Philip is not able to be here. Let's, let's, let's pray as they're coming up. Father, thank you for passages like this that we can hear and keep. Lord, we don't have to have it all figured out, but Lord, thank you that you have something for us to hear and keep in response. Thank you, God, that we have been kept in you because we've been sealed by you. Thank you that you answer the prayers of your saints. Thank you that you punish and you will punish all unrighteousness one day. Thank you, God, that you reveal the evil ugliness of idolatry. And thank you, God, that for this motivation, not only to live for you, but to proclaim you and your good news, the blood of the Lamb shed for us. Lord, we want to worship you in gratitude. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Let's